Welcome to This Week in Sparkling Water. My name is Ewar Kamerikson and I'm the host of This Week in Sparkling Water. I'm struggling with the podcast a little bit. Um, I've done, it's, this is episode 170, I've done 120 weeks in a row. Because I did 50 episodes and then I took a little hiatus. And then six months later, I picked it back up, and every week for 120 weeks, I've um, done an episode. And it's maybe you'd <laughs> maybe you'd think that I'd struggle with running out of things to say, but that's not it at all. Like that's not the problem at all. The problem is the problem is that I'm not allowed to say it anymore. The problem is that like I think there's a Honesty is a part here where it's like the relationship between honesty and how honest you're allowed to be and just in completely in a public open way. There's a weird relationship between like honesty and if your life is in a state of complete failure or like a little bit of a little bit of success. It's like, I think, I mean, this is about sobriety, right? Like the podcast has always been a big part of my sobriety program where it's like, I got sober five years ago, and this is a thing where I've carved, I tried so many things for a long time, and it was a struggle. And then this is this thing where I've carved out like a space where for one hour every week, I like sit and I check in with myself. And I make sure that I'm honest with myself about anxiety levels, what feelings am I running away from, What's risky business, you know? It's their trouble in paradise. And so far it's worked, you know? So far, there, you know, I haven't relapsed. I'm good, you know? I'm sober. I'm sober and I'm grateful. Today. And I'm not allowed to talk about tomorrow. In the program, you're not allowed to talk about tomorrow. It's just like, I, I'm gonna not drink today. That's the extent of the promise to yourself. Because whenever you make it bigger than that, whenever you're like, I'm going to be sober for the rest of my life or for 20 years, or I'm going to take a year off of drinking, everything like that becomes too heavy for the alcoholic mind. And you end up failing because it's unwieldy. That You have to break it off into a bite-sized piece of what you can handle. And what you can handle is like one day. But, but the thing about honesty is like for a long time I was just – I just existed in the state of like drugs and alcohol and, and it, it meant there was so much fear. There was so much lack of integration and like I was all these different people with – I was different personalities with different people, so much lying. And, and what you realize when you get sober is that it was all completely unnecessary. No one gave a shit because when you're – when you exist in a – when you are like captured by drugs and alcohol, no one puts you, no one makes you responsible for anything important, you know? I mean, they do for a little bit and then they quickly realize, you know? So <laughs> you're, not, you're not really responsible for that much and you're kind of on the ground level. You're kind of on the ground floor of life. The skyscraper of life, you're kind of just stuck on the ground floor. So on the ground floor... You have nothing, no relationships with people, professional stuff. None of it really matters because you're just stuck on the ground floor. And no one like 
gives you anything big. So the fact that you're lying about everything and try to hide everything, it's actually completely meaningless. And that's just a form of narcissism. No one cares about your secrets, you know? Because ain't nobody giving you real good, like no one, yeah. And then when I got sober, I realized that no one cared. So the podcast was a way to just be like, let's just talk about everything and just become one person. Because that had always, that was always my problem. That it was like one completely different person with my family and one completely different person at work and a completely different person in each friend group. Like, you know, you got all these weird ass right-winger fucking bullshit French friends. And then you got like, you know, you know, all my lesbian friends over here. And it's like, I was just completely different people with all these people. And it made me very anxious. It just created this weird baseline of anxiety that was also completely unnecessary where like I was just always hiding from something, but no one was looking for me. You know, just completely like narcissistic, invented um, complex of thinking that you're being chased down by someone, but it's like, no, you're a completely unimportant loser because you just, you're just captured by drugs and alcohol. So then when I got sober, I just like, I just dropped all of it. And I was like, I'll just talk about how I feel on the podcast and I'll just be like one person and I'll just cohere everything, everything into this one thing that everyone, that all these different groups can listen to. And then, you know, no one really listens to it and it's all good. And like, I don't need anyone to listen to it. It's about the mental, it's about the mental exercise of becoming one person, you know? So that was what it was. That was what it really helped me with. And I have really become one person. Like I have come so far on my journey of becoming one person and be, being one person and being integrated is a much better baseline of anxiety. We're like, I'm anxious as fuck all the time, but it's manageable. I don't have this added stress of feeling like I'm living a lie. But then the weird next step is like, when you are sober for a while, people actually entrust you with stuff and you actually become roped into stuff and it's, you know what, it's like there's this meme on the internet where it's just some girl and she's crying and the caption is just, I boss girled too hard and now I'm responsible for a bunch of shit. Now all these people rely on me. And it's like, that's a meme I refer to frequently, but it is like a very key dynamic that's tough. And it's like, it's so surprising to me how much of my life now has to be secret for like other reasons because you like in your professional life or in your love life or with friends or like projects that I do, things that I do, once things become important, you're no longer on the ground level of life and now you exist in a context of a group of people who rely on you for stuff. And then I go through those situations and like I have emotional reactions to stuff that I wanna talk about, but I like can't talk about any of it on the podcast because now, all the shit is like important to other people. Like, I'm not gonna say it's actually important because like maybe nothing is actually important, but, but it is like something, you know, it is something. And so now I'm finding myself like all these things I wanna talk through, 
I'm not allowed to talk about any of them. And I don't know. I think I'm going to do a hiatus. I think I'm going to take a month off from the podcast because I've also gotten into this, maybe it's becoming a little bit of a prison. You know, maybe it's becoming a little bit of a, I'm, I'm a little bit trapped inside of my own mental construct of, of telling myself that this is part of the structure that I need and it's the discipline that I need. And maybe there's a little bit of a cap to how much I could self-therapy myself in a completely open and public space. This is really something that I see both sides of. Like I really believe in openness. I really believe in the power of just, you, it, it doesn't have to happen in private, you know? I had a fight with Jacob Bradley about this recently where he was like, I don't know, he just like was talking about emotions and I was talking about my emotions and he was like, you shouldn't talk about your emotions. Like these things, you should talk about it privately. And it's like, <laughs> I am so not fair. That is so fucking unfair to his standpoint that it's not at all what he meant, but it is what I heard, okay? It is what I heard. It's not what he said because I couldn't hear what he was saying because I could only hear what I was hearing, you know? Because there was an overlay. His voice was stopping in the air between us and then what was blocking it was like my own mental construct of my own inner narrative of what I was feeling attacked about, you know? <laughs> so good. So stupid. I'm so stupid. Anyway, so I really believe that it's like really nice and Empower, like it's made me feel so much better to talk about things just in a completely open space because I have so much anxiety about things, about trying to keep things private and to just unball the fist and let go of all of that and just be like, it's okay. I'm going to tell everyone that I'm like a fucking piece of shit. And then when you say it, you realize that then all these people email you and they're like, you're not a piece of shit. And it's like, oh, really? Like you listen to that one hour of me describing in detail about what a piece of shit I am. And then you're going to email me and say that I'm not a piece of shit. I might even believe you. You know what I'm saying? Like I might even, that might make an impression on me. So it's been a lot of that and it's been very good. And then the other thing that's a struggle. I mean, the first part that's a struggle is like, there's so many things now that have an emotional impact on me that I have to talk through that has to be secret. Secrecy is the first one. Privacy, really. You know, everyone wants this, like, own private Idaho with me, and it's like, I'm, I guess I have to respect that, and it's like, yeah, it's tough. But then the other thing is, like, happiness. Like, I'm like way happier now. Like I'm almost happy. I'm like almost happy. And I've never been happy. And I've always been unhappy. I've always been sad. I've always been sad and anxious. And sad and anxious, there's a certain like je ne sais quoi to it. There's a certain like poetry to sadness and anxiety where it's like, the, the lens, when you tell a story through a lens of sadness and anxiety, it's like, you know, there's a certain story to it. It, it kind of it it works. It, there's like a plot tension, you know? You need a little bit of tension for plot to move along. 
ain't nothing more boring than someone being happy. And so there's a lot of that where I'm like, I don't know, man. Is the death of the podcast me becoming happy? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I'm feeling this week. I mean, I don't know. I just had all these moments where I'm just like happy and I go a long period of time without like this crippling anxiety of how everything is wrong. Like sometimes I'll go three hours without experiencing the the like outer space, deep black darkness of the sadness of how everything is wrong. You know, sometimes I'll have coffee for three hours with someone and I'll be happy. You know, I've never felt that. I never felt that before. Um, you know, I, I, there's this weird thing I do once a month where it's like this lady invited me. Fiona works at the front desk at the Holbrook and her aunt invited me to this thing that she calls a salon and it's modeled after the 19, 1940s philosophers who would get together and have a salon and we gather once a month and there's five or six of us and we sit in a room and we have a topic each time and they're all like different types of therapists and stuff and they're all really cool and they're all really different from each other and especially from me and different ages, all different kinds of stuff. And it's so interesting to just have a topic. And then yesterday we were talking about rest. And I just realized so many things about like, I'm so much happier with people. Like I really struggle with being alone. Like I'm a weird form of, I don't know. I think this is, might be a boring corner, but I'm like, I'm a weird type of introvert where I, I, I always want to, I think I want to be alone, but when I'm alone, I hate it. And um, what I realized is that like when I'm alone, I have this incredible, um, just like gnawing anxiety about how I should be doing something extremely productive. And even if I start doing something extremely productive, the feeling doesn't go away. But when I'm with people, that feeling is not there. And then we were talking about that yesterday and and randomly the lady who owns my house, my landlady is in this group of six people. It's like the most small town shit. It's such fucking small town shit. Um, the lady, my landlady, the lady I, I Venmo her my rent on the first of every month. She opens up and she's like, I'm the opposite. When I am alone, I just sit on the ground, on the earth, and it takes me 15 minutes, but then I calm down and then I'm actually calm and serene and happy. And then when I'm with people, I'm just always anxious. And she's like, I'm with the five of you right now and I'm super anxious. And it just feels, there's something extremely raw and honest and beautiful about saying, about being sensitive, about being uh, vulnerable with people and saying and it just admitting that you don't feel good about the vibe. Because it, it, I'm scared of ever saying that, even though I frequently experience it, because I, I'm afraid of it triggering a, a death spiral, where it's like, if I'm hanging out with someone and I say out loud, I really don't like the vibe right now and it's making me super anxious, I'm afraid that, they'll, that that'll fuck up the vibe way more. 
<laughs> and now the person is like angry with me and I'll, I'll like have my first panic attack. So I will keep that shit on the inside. You feel me? But my landlady just like said it out loud. And it just opened up this thing where we could be like, you know, is there any way we can like, you know, what can we do to support you? And she just like laid down on the ground and covered her face. And it was a beautiful moment because then she felt better. Anyway, um, next thing. Today's my dad's birthday. And I don't talk to my dad anymore. And I think I'm going to call him. And it's this thing I think about a lot. Or I mean, he calls me all the time. I think in Sweden, let me see if I can unpack this. I think maybe in Sweden, we don't have the concept of cutting someone out of your life. We just haven't invented that. No one in Sweden invented that. No one's heard of it. No one's imported it. So like when I don't pick up and then my mom tells me, hey, your dad's trying to call you. And I say, and I explained it to her. One time I explained it fully. I was like, look, I have a drinking problem. He has a drinking problem. When he calls me and he's wasted, it makes me feel horrible. Like it brings me so far down because I see so much of myself in him. Ooh, this is hard to talk about. Um, I see so much of myself in him and I am still, which eat, with each year of life, maybe I am, with each year of life, maybe I'm getting a little bit better with this. But like when I was 20 and 25, I was just convinced, fully convinced that I was on the exact same life track as he is and was. Which means that like in your 20s, you have some friends and then your mental health falls apart and you lose all, you lose it all, you lose it all. And yeah. And you end up alone in an apartment and you don't have any friends and you never leave your apartment without taking a bunch of Xanax and you kind of never leave your apartment and you don't have a job and, and you just watch TV and you drink. That's my life path, you know? Like in my 20s, I'll have some friends and then I'll try to keep them and I'll try to keep in touch with society and I'll try to leave my house, but it, it will always be difficult and it will be more and more difficult until I cannot do it anymore. And eventually I will give up. And somewhere in my late 20s, early 30s, late 30s, early 40s, it will become less and less until there is very little of me left. You know? That is the life track I am on. And sometimes... Sometimes when my, yeah, when my dad calls me and he's wasted, it's like... That's how I feel. And that's very shameful and and I feel very bad about that and but it feels good to just say it out loud in front of everyone and just be like It's funny man because like I wrote this book. I wrote this book and it's kind of like an autobiography. It's auto fiction. It's like autobiography where I inserted a couple of metaphors and there's a little bit of fol folkloric magic and it's about this Swedish guy whose name is Joachim and he 
he's looking for a sense of belonging and it describes his whole family and it's just like my real family but he has like a magical potato friend and it's like you know it's a magical potato friend and stories are told about the magic like the magical potato friend is a vehicle for a lot of points i'm trying to make about how bad i feel but um the book is so much of it is about my dad and it's like it's so open and how i feel and how i feel about my dad and how i feel about myself and where i'm going and then now more and more of my family members have read the book and they just say, wow, what a great book. <laughs> they don't acknowledge any of it. It's so funny. It's like so Swedish because the book is all about, well, in Sweden, we don't talk about anything out loud. Like we don't acknowledge anything. Bad things happen and then we don't acknowledge them. <laughs> it's very meta. You see how meta that is? It's very meta. It's very meta to be like, <laughs> for like my sister and my aunt and everyone and my grandparents to just read the book and be like, great. What a great book. It's so fucking funny. It reminds me of, because, because there's that, those really thick books, there's like seven volumes and each volume is super thick. And it's like, it's called My Struggle, not to be confused with um, the book that from German is also translated as mine. Mein struggle, mein struggle. I'm talking about Mein Kampf by Hitler, but no, I'm not talking about Mein Kampf. I'm talking about the fucking Norwegian guy who wrote seven books in the My Struggle series. Knapfholm, you know, Knut, whatever. Insert stupid Norwegian name, and he just writes about his family and his dad and his sisters and and the suffering, all of his suffering. He's like super neurotic. And his family wrote, read the books and they hated it and they fought him over it. And the books are all about like how suppressed everyone is and how no one talks about anything and he talks about everything out loud in the book. And I find it so funny that like, well, the fact that they actually fight you on it means that you're kind of not that Norwegian. I'm kind of out, out Scandinavian you here by not fighting with my family about it because no one talks about anything out loud. Um... But yeah, so I'm doing good and I'm kind of happy and my dad is like doing better. My sister has two kids. The kids, they're his grandchildren. It is injecting him with a newfound sense of life. And maybe there's a little bit of sobriety in his life and maybe there's some lucidity. And maybe I'm going to call him, you know. Alexa, what time is it in Sweden? In Sweden, it's 6.40 a.m. Yeah, maybe I'm going to call him in two hours when it's 9 a.m. in Sweden. And it's his birthday. You know, because he's been calling me a lot, and I haven't talked to him since I left Sweden eight months ago, and since I was there last summer. And, um, yeah, because it's like this argument, you know, where, like, argument it's not an argument but there's like different things you can think about it you can think that you can like i talked to my friend dave about this a lot and he gets heated because he's not in touch with his dad and his dad might not be alive or something he's only met his dad like twice and his dad was not nice to him those times and so when i say my dad's trying to talk to me and i don't talk to him 
all Dave can hear is like, well, maybe you should fucking cherish it while it is there. And here's the thing, Dave is not wrong, you know? Like I have my reasons, but Dave is not wrong. And I've kind of been, you know, some people, some people, not just Dave, you know, some people, their dads are not alive. Some people, their dads are not alive and, and then that makes me feel a different thing about not talking to my dad. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a call my dad. All right. We got to, what am I going to say to him? Yeah. Here's the thing. It's like nothing. I'm just going to listen. I'm just going to be there. You know, these, these hippies that I do the salon thing with, they have all these words that they all use. Even though they're all different from each other, they have these words that they all use as if they are words everyone knows. But it's like, bro, these are not words. Like, they all talk about source. They're like, if you ever get in a creative flow state, that's from source. And it's like, what are you talking about? What does that sentence mean, dude? Like, I understand that it can feel... it is a well-documented thing that people have explained in different ways that when you get into it, like, flowy enough creative state, it really feels like the thoughts are coming from outside of you. And it's actually very helpful to even conceptualize it like that. And, like, just everything with coming in and coming out is very... Um, it's somehow it's very easy to imagine things like that. Like, I don't believe in any, you know, oh God, never mind. Let's not even reemphasize what I don't believe in. But what I do find extremely evocative and like very convincing, like just not rationally convincing, but just like emotionally convincing is a meditation exercise of just sitting and imagining that you're exhaling negativity and exhaling anxiety and inhaling positivity. It's like just actually quite easy to imagine that. The bringing something into your body that's different from what's inside of your body and taking a specific thing from your body and bringing it out of your body. For some reason, that's like very easy to imagine when you focus enough. And like another thing they were talking about yesterday is like, the magic of water and like how everything is water. And they're, they're all animists that like believe in this like pan consciousness thing. And one part of animus, and it just means that everything is aware, right? So one thing is like, before you drink water, you should say something to the water. <laughs> I love this. It's so fucking nice, dude, because it's so like silly, but it's also powerful. And there's the Venn diagram of silly and powerful is like, that's a pretty big one, you know? A lot, of, a lot of very powerful things are quite silly. And so it's like when you want to be in a restful state, you just hold up a glass of water and you look at the water and you make eye contact with the water and you speak to the water and you say rest. You just say the word rest. Like if you need to go back to bed, and if you need to go back to sleep and you can't fall back asleep, you get out of bed, you pour a glass of water and you speak to the water and you say rest. And then you drink the water and you drink the rest into yourself and then you fall asleep. And it's like, bro, of course that works. That's awesome. I I love that. That's great. But um, yeah. Anyway. 
they're all talking about documentaries on Gaia TV and there's one about water and how you need to speak to the water. And I might even watch it, you know? I might even watch it today because, you know, that sounds powerful. That sounds good. You know, just a, just a Swede in the fucking hamlets in the mountains just trying to make, just trying to make do, you know? I'm just trying to, just trying to keep it peaceful with the hippies out here. It's, it's a beautiful thing. They're beautiful people. Um, like, I love them more than my own people. I do. That's the weird thing. I sound condescending and negative and hateful, but I love them more than my own people. Like, I am here because I love them. It's just that emotionally I'm coming from so far away that I'm still traveling towards them, and it's like, it's going to take me light years in this spaceship traveling at a very high speed to get anywhere close to where they're at, you know? Just a little bit too secular. Just coming from a little bit too secular of a planet over here. But um, what I, what I the reason I brought them up is because they, they all use this expression, uh, holding space for someone, you know? Holding space for someone. And I'm like, yeah, it's pretty self-explanatory what that means. But then I Googled it and it's just like, it's this nice phrase. That's just about like when you hold space for someone, it means to listen to them and to just make space for their emotions and be fully present, listening to and processing their emotions with them so that they don't have to be alone with their emotions. That That's like the definition of holding space for someone. And um, I talked about that a few episodes ago and I think I'm going to call my dad and I'm kind of just going to hold space for him. And it's 9 a.m., so fellas should be sober. Let's have a sparkling water, you know? Trader Joe's sparkling water, raspberry lime. Let's see what's up. Okay. Let's smell it. God damn, that smells good, dude. Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's. That smells like raspberry. Let's taste it. Ooh, that tastes like I've reviewed it already on the podcast. Yeah, that's a thing that got harder. I didn't run out of things to say, but I ran out of things I was allowed to say, and I found it harder and harder to talk about things to be interesting when you're happy, and also it, it's getting a little bit harder to find new flavors or new waters. Or actually not harder, but like, so somehow I'm a little bit less interested in spending a bunch of money on it because there's a lot of sparkling water on the internet. But it's all like, now there's only the expensive ones left. And paying like 50 bucks for a variety pack of fancy sparkling water, it's a little bit, it's a little bit, <laughs> it's a little bit of a big expense. Like 50 bucks every week, it's funny. <laughs> Just like... Just like single guy works too much, has very few expenses, uh, has a hobby, reviews sparkling water, spends a lot of money on it. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That's an 8 out of 10. I like it a lot. I like it a lot, but it tastes a little bit like I've reviewed it before. Um, <clears throat> okay, here's another thing I want to talk about. You know, I don't think I've ever talked about this on the podcast. It's weird. It's like, <laughs> how do I start this? When I was a teenager in southern Sweden, the where I lived, there was this thing going on 
a culture, if you will, of if you were alternative in the very least, meaning if you listen to a little bit of Bright Eyes, if you listen to, you know, if some of the boys wear a little bit of eyeliner, maybe you dye your hair black, which is like in high school and stuff, that's a sizable proportion of the population, of the high school population. If you're part of that slightly alternative third or 25% of the high school population, there was this thing going on where <laughs> to say, when we were saying hello, when boys were saying hello to each other, they would make out with tongue. It was like this thing that we did. And it was like, surely it was like a rebellious act that has something to say about gender norms. It was, it felt political, but it's like, it's just weird because it, it lasted for a few years. You'd go to a party and you'd see all your friends there and to say hello to all of them, you'd just like make out with them for a bit. You'd make out with each person individually for a bit. And it was just this thing we did. Like some sort of experimental thing. And the weird thing about it is that I don't know that people did that 10 years before that period. This is like probably 2004, uh, you know, 2001, 2003, those types of that era. I don't think anyone was doing it 10 years before that. And I don't think anyone was doing it 10 years after. And I've never seen it depicted in any media, you know? Like always when you have some sort of weird, like quirky high school culture or whatever culture, eventually you see it depicted in a movie or in a TV show or something. And it's like this one, I don't think it was just like me and the fucking 100 people I met those few years. I, it must have been just a larger cultural phenomena, but somehow, yeah. And it was like, I don't know. It was weird. It was a little bit weird. It was a little bit gay. It was a little bit gay. I probably made out with, let's be honest. Let's be honest. Like, cause it wasn't like at school. It's not like you go to high school. It's not like daytime you go to school, you're in, you know, high school, you say hi to your friends, you make out with them there. No, it's like every time you hang out after school, which is like you hang out at someone's house, there's music. Maybe sometimes there's alcohol. Alcohol is a little bit hard to come by. Um, you know, you're a high schooler. In Sweden, you have to be 18 to buy alcohol, I think. Let me think. No, you have to be you have to be 20 to buy alcohol in a store and 18 to buy alcohol in a bar. It's different. Um, but and no one has any money to go to a bar, even the people who turn 18, but but so you buy smuggled in alcohol from Germany. But um, and then maybe someone's got a little bit of hash, maybe someone has a little bit of amphetamines. A good number of those people that I made out with, they, some of those boys are not alive anymore. You know, because, because it gets dark. It gets dark out there. Lilith posted a meme today, just like, mist is just goth air. It's 
I like that. It's a good meme. That's a picture of some mist. Lilith is quitting, quitting Holbrook. That's a, that is a end of an era. We are moving. A lot of people are, there's a lot of movement. Um, but yeah, you know, I don't know this thing about like, when I was a teenager, I probably made out with 40 boys plus minus 10, 30 to 50 boys. And I remember some of the times it wasn't like I did because, you know, when you're in a big friend group, there are people on the periphery where like you might not think they're that cool and you might dab them up, but you might not mean it. And in this context, it meant like some guy that I don't like I'm not that cool with that guy. And he just like makes out with me for a little bit. And then I remember especially this one guy, this like super goth guy who I didn't like him, man. I didn't like him. And he just like makes out with me for a little bit. And then his fat ass girlfriend is right there. His like big old goth, overweight goth girl girlfriend is right there. And <clears throat> and he's like, and he's like, say hi to her. And then she like leans in and like makes out with me for a bit. And it's like, oh God. What is this? What is this cultural phenomena that I've been pulled into? And it's like, it's almost like everything in culture is survival of the, you know, survival of the fittest, survival of the somethingist. So um, it's almost like this, this blip where it was like, it was invented. It was like, it, it got a little bit of momentum. It became a cultural phenomenon where everyone did it, but it wasn't really, it didn't have staying power. Like it didn't stick around. It was a little bit too, you know, too weird to be considered for mass production. And so after a few years, it was like, ah, I don't think we're doing this anymore. And it was a pretty gay time. It's a pretty gay time. I made out with a lot more boys than girls back then. Made out with a lot more boys than girls back then. That was a terrible time, actually. Not, not that, not that it's, not because of that, but it was just, it was a, you know, I was a very unhappy teenager. But, um, yeah, I really, it's, it's one of those things where, like, I've tried to talk to people about it and I've tried to talk to people after the fact and been like, you remember that? You remember that stuff where we would all like, everyone would always make it, say hello by making out? Just like 15, 20 seconds with tongue making out was how we said hello to each other, especially boy on boy. Um, <clears throat> people are always like, yeah, maybe. And then I was trying to ask my buddy Niklas, Niklas Renofalk or whatever his name is, I was trying to ask him because he grew up in Stockholm. And I'd be like, <laughs> did you guys do that? <laughs> and I remember him being, he's such a classic fucking, like, cl he's a classic man, you know? In a, and that's not, that's, I love him, but the classicness of him is the worst part of him. Because, like, we should not be traditionalists. We just shouldn't in some of these things. And one of his very traditionalist things was that he was like, no, we didn't do that. I didn't make out with boys when I was a teenager. But what he did describe instead was like, no, but what we did do that, that what it made him think of that was like similar enough to bring it up was that they would do the classic thing of six boys get together and they masturbate on a piece on a bread product. 
And then like you try to bully someone into eating the bread product and it's like, wow, that is something that should not be a cultural phenomenon. That shouldn't be a thing. And I cannot believe that in the, you know, like in the survival of the fittest of, of tropes and culture and everything, like that's the one that we should have weeded out. That's the one we should have weeded out, guys. How is that a thing? Jesus, that makes me really depressed about humanity, that that, that one's a thing. Um, oh, God, I feel like that derailed my entire podcast episode. Oh, in immediate migraine. Maybe you got to drink another water to just palate reset. Okay, so Trader Joe's sparkling water, winter sangria. What the hell is winter sangria? Winter sangria is actually a very cool name because sangria is summery and it's delicious and it's cool. Actually, you know what winter sangria is? Mold wine. Because sangria is wine that you hit with like, um, you know, you might hit it with some cherry syrup. You might hit it with a lot of fruit. You might hit it with a liquor. I don't know. But um, you might hit it with some Sprite, you know, just like make it sweet, sweeten it up. And then mold wine, it's like you hit it with all these wintry spices and port and ginger and orange, just a bunch of orange wheels in there, just like sangria. Mold wine is winter sangria. So you, Trader Joe's, they just lost a point right there. Let's smell it. Okay. Doesn't smell like anything. Okay. Okay. Does that taste like anything? Um, that's very light. It tastes like like a tiny bit of cranberry juice and nothing else. Um, okay, so that's not very good. Because it's like very light and not... It's kind of like a very light artificial thing. Okay, so that's a 5 out of 10. Oh, and then it has a really perfumey end tail palette. Oh, the end, the end note is just very, very perfumey and artificial and, uh, and, um, way too floral and fake. Yeah, that's a five out of 10 or, or worse. Um, okay. So here's another thing I've been thinking about, and this is a crazy one. And, and I mean, I don't know, man. I'm talking about these things and it's like, I don't know. Sometimes I try to talk about the crazy shit at the end of the episode because I'm like, if you don't like me and you hear me say this, you will hate me and you will make an effort to make fun of me for it. But if you make it 45 minutes into an episode, I don't know how long we are into this episode, but if you make it deep into the episode, then maybe we're fine, you know? Maybe you, you have to have some level of... You have to have some level of charity for me for making it this far in. Do people hate listen to this podcast? I don't know. Maybe they do. I got a lot of enemies at this point, you know? 
There's a lot of things I'm not allowed to talk about because I got a lot of enemies. And it's like, I don't want to. I don't want to have enemies, but I do. God damn it, dude. Fuck, I hate having enemies. Any, having enemies makes me want to move away to go. I makes me want to go to a new county. And that sucks. Anyway, um, here's the thing I was going to talk about. It's like I had this experience, right? Where I've talked about this in different ways, short version, long version on the podcast, but it's like, I had this experience where I think the most honest way to describe it is that when I was living in Shanghai, my first four years in China, I was living in Shanghai and I had a lot of friends and I had a lot of different friend groups and I was friends with a bunch of French dudes who were like these rapey, horrible people that I'm not friends with anymore who like, it was always a weird, like, they always tried to trick you. And then I was friends with just like a big old group of gay dudes who I loved and who are still my friends. And then <sighs> there was one guy, his name was John Brilliant. And he, I think maybe the most fair way to describe it is that maybe it started with him kind of having a crush on me. And we were like, he was a year older than me and we would spend a lot of time together and I was just like, I was just in awe of, he was so cool. And, <clears throat> and I'm not totally straight and everything. And I was just coming out of my teens where I made out with 45 boys just to say hello and stuff. And so there was a lot of drugs and alcohol and stuff. And then we just sort of like, I mean, it was kind of vague. I don't know if, I don't know if it's like completely honest to say that we were like dating, but it was like, we were kind of, there was a lot of emotion and there was a lot of stuff that happened over a long, over a pretty prolonged period of time. It's not like we were in a monogamous romantic relationship, but we were, we were, you know, when you're two people and I really like, I mean, I loved him in so many different ways and it was crazy and, and stuff. And and then when you hook up and stuff, I mean, I don't know if I'm like gay enough to be like for it to have been a real relationship, but I was gay enough to sleep with him. But um, yeah, and then so we have this thing and it's like, I think we were both very enamored with each other in very different ways. And then he got sick and he moved to America because he wasn't feeling good. And he goes to America and he, it is discovered that he has lung cancer. And then it's a year of, I've talked about this part on the podcast, but let me just recap this part because I've realized something new about it recently. He, he gets lung cancer and he's like 23, he was like 24 or 23 when he died. It's like the craziest thing. I don't know. Maybe he was 25, but he was um, very young and he tried to write a book about it. And he wrote the first book, first half. And it was called like the hipster's guide to getting cancer. And it was like, dude, in 2008, nine, like people didn't even use the word hipster yet. Like it was, it was just at the forefront of everything. His job was, 
his job was he worked for Apple and he his job was to go to the electronics markets and just look at what devices they had, what tech they had that was coming out of the fucking prototype um, mills of Shenzhen, like the prototype industry in like in 2005 and six and seven and eight this is very embryonic it's just the factories that make iphones have stuff next to them where people are trying to fix the, the parts that broke and the the big machinery that was making the iphone and now it's broken and they try to fix it so they can make their own iphones and they fix it a little bit and they make some parts of the iphone and they invent the other parts and they're just trying to like put stuff together to make money and they learn how to prototype stuff and they learn how to just like modularly put stuff together. And there's just so much tech and so much money and so many factories. And it's such an explosion when the iPhone is launched that Apple just is paying him and probably other people, but like it's paying him to just write reports about what's going on in China. Like we don't want to, we don't want him to trick us, you know? We don't want him to to accidentally have some tech that we don't know about. So he would just like go and just buy all the crazy devices he could find and describe them to Apple and send reports back to Silicon Valley. Because he's like from the Bay and his dad worked for like the... He, his dad was the head of like the philanthropy arm of Google. You know? Like Google.org. His dad's name was Larry Brilliant, and he was like a famous doctor. He is a famous doctor. And he wrote a book called Sometimes Brilliant. And then sometimes I'm in a public library sitting reading a book, and I look over and I see his dad's book on the shelf, and I'm like, <sighs> yeah, because John died. John got lung cancer, and John died. And here's the Here's the crazy thing that I've been thinking the last six months that I've been just like going over in my head. Like, <clears throat> I think in my early 20s, I was like quite gay. I was just like, it wasn't, I was just quite like attracted to different people and it was very open and there was very little pain and there was very... Like, I got my heart broken in my teens, but still, it's like you keep going and you're attracted to people and you just have deep emotions and and you... I had a lot of deep emotions without, like, getting really my heart like heartbroken because I never really, like, committed to any one thing in such a big way. I was, like, just this very open... We didn't have the words for it of open relationships and poly and stuff, but it was just, like... I was a very fleeting bird and I was into everything and I would hang out with anyone and I was very fearless and I would wear crazy things. Like I would wear very small clothing. Like I would sometimes wear very little clothing because it was hot out. And I was like, I don't give a fuck. And I remember like, I remember this one time when I was dating Wendy Wang, I was like, she introduced me to, she invited me over to her friend's house because fr her friend was having a get-together. And it's like all these Taiwanese people, everyone in there is Taiwanese. They're quite traditional. And they're just like successful tech or lawyers or just like early 30s professionals. And I just show up and I'm like this 22-year-old Swedish drug addict. And I just wear like 
a tank top and some women's pants and it's like that my clothing is very small and it had been raining outside and I was completely drenched. And for some reason I didn't care that I was, that my clothing was completely wet and I kind of liked that my clothing was completely wet and I just show up to this party and it was just so like, like I think back, I thought back, I think back on it later and I'm like, dude, I wasn't actually trying to be that weird. I wasn't actually trying to be super weird, but I was being super weird. But anyway, John died after a year of fighting cancer. And the thing about it is that that was like a thing where it made me really sad in so many ways. It made me sad in a way where like, we had like a budding embryonic relationship that could have like become something if he hadn't gotten sick and left. It could have been like, like he was just so like, like he was a year older than me and he was like 200 years smarter than me. He was just like this once in a lifetime intellect where you're like, I just was so in awe, like he wrote these things about Chinese politics and, and like, cause it was the Olympics was 2008, right? The Beijing Olympics, 2008. And he wrote these things about like the iconography and the imagery from the party and what the, this, the slogans meant and his Chinese was perfect already. And what the slogans meant and what the different plushy toys that the Olympic merchandise store had and the cartoons and everything and how they fit into communist history and the imagery of the posters, all the old, because communist propaganda has always been very image-based. Image and language. And it's like specificity of language has always been extremely important to Chairman Mao and the Communist Party. And Chairman Mao always said that if your words are off by one millimeter, then your conclusion will be off by 1,000 kilometers, you know? They did this on purpose. Like they put layers and layers and layers of meaning into the imagery and the words on purpose. And then he like decoded it in a way where, like, because these cartoons were for the children, you know? The cartoons that they invented, the hundred episodes of cartoons that they invented with the during the Olympics to show to children about the fuwas that were the the mascots of the Olympics, they were about communist propaganda and like translating it to a more modern world. And it's like he that was his thing that it was opaque. They weren't telling you what they were doing. They were just doing it. And Chairman Mao was always very good at speaking directly to the children. And the propaganda directly to children is a good, like, you get through to children because they haven't developed all the cynicism yet, you know? They're not, they don't have the media critique skills that that grown-ups have. So propaganda for children is f quite efficient, you know? And, and it's good and the efficacy is good and... And it's like, he wrote these fucking academic papers on it and gave them to me. And I read them and it's like, I just like fell in love with him because of those papers. And it was like crazy. And it's like, they were so smart that like fucking 15 years later when I'm writing a book, even though 15 years have passed, no one has come up with these smart things that he said. 
because he was so ahead of his time that like I just fucking put those ideas in my book, you know, because no one else did. It was just files on my computer from a guy who's not alive anymore that no one was doing anything with. And I was just so sad that all those ideas were going to go nowhere. So like, I just worked them into my book, you know, he, I, he just was all the characters in my book. And everything about politics, everything I know about Chinese politics that's interesting and unique that not everyone else knows is from him, you know, it's from him and Sebastian. And I didn't come up with anything on my own. But it just made me, I was sad when he died. I was sad in so many ways because I was sad both in like, uh, I just want to have him in the room with me way, you know? I just like a physical touch. It's weird, you know, it's weird. It's weird when you've had sex with someone and they die. It, there's, there's a weird thing there. It's like, it's quite weird. It's quite, quite spooky. Um, but then it's also just his other way. And this is, we feel like this, I don't know. If we feel close enough with someone, we always feel like this when they die. But, but, but you can feel it more with some people that, that it can feel like a, a loss, not just a personal loss, but a loss for the world. And he was really this person that was a level of smart and a level of hardworking and a level of like precocious, like to at 23 have gotten put together the things that he had already put together and the amount of writing. He just like text was just flowing out of him, you know, perfectly written, beautiful philosopher text was just flowing out of him with ease and like if he had lived, he would have been like a famous writer. He would have written so many books because like he even, he wrote half of a book from a fucking dialysis machine, you know? And so there's like a, a wide full spectrum sadness of being sad, not just for yourself, but being sad that the world lost a person that's like a little bit special. And then... There's this other weird thing that I'm, that it's the point of what I'm saying here, which is like, I think that's sadness. Oh, yeah. The other thing that really created like, ah, it created a lot of pain in me is how I failed. Because like, when he got sick, he would like Skype call me from America and I would pick up, but I would retract, I retracted. Because I was young and I didn't know how the world worked and I didn't know what it means to be a friend. And I didn't know, no one had used the expression holding space for someone. I didn't know that expression. So I didn't do that. Okay. And it's like one of the saddest things in my life that I didn't do that. Like he needed to just have his emotions and, and have someone be there with him through his emotions. And I kind of abandoned him because I was young and it was painful and he was very sick and I wasn't there for him. And I felt so guilty and so bad about that in a way that I wasn't even aware of that. And this is the point of what I'm, the whole thing I'm saying here. The point is that I think it sort of made it hard for me to be attracted to men because I associated all of that with so much subconscious pain. And it's sort of like... I don't know, you know, love and attraction and sexuality and stuff. It's so interesting how that stuff relates to pain. Because like, I think 
that there's a way for love and sexuality and attraction to exist and if it if it gets to exist in a in a pure unadult like in an uncorrupted pain-free way you become this person where it's just energy that flows unimpeded without sharp edges only rounded edges within you with energy flowing and you can just be really interested in other people's pleasure and you can be a good person and you can have so much charity in your heart and you can have a big heart and you can fall in love with people in a big way and all of that and then like when there's pain introduced that's where all of the problems come in that's why we become like you know that's why we that's why some people perpetuate pain and like with sex and it's like i don't know i think i a part of me shut down when he died and it's like and it's weird you know cuz like society's kind of homophobic so it's like if I was 30% gay and 70% straight and you live in a homophobic society and then you have this like big shock to your system, traumatic thing of like this man that you're kind of like falling in love with dies. And then it's like, I think it kind of made me a little bit straight. It made me act straight, you know? It made me, it made it so I could... It made it so that it seemed the path of least resistance was, I don't know, some lady jiggling her titties in my face or something, you know, big old jiggly titties or something. Shit like that, you know? Fucking stupid labia. <laughs> oh, God. It's so, it's so crass. <laughs> oh, God. I need to take it. I, this podcast needs a hiatus, bro. This podcast has overstayed its welcome. I need to take a month off from this podcast. Oh, I love you guys. But yeah, I don't know. It's something I've been thinking about, that thing with John. And it's like, God damn it, that shit fucked me up. And it's like, oh, fuck. It's just, there's so, it's so many emotions at the same time. Because there's also FOMO. Like, there's also, like, selfish pain of, like, I would have loved to be along for the ride with someone that cool who exists in a context that's so cool. Like, someone who, back in America, has, you know, hangs out with Rick Rubin or some shit, you know? Like, in a selfish way, I'm like, oh, imagine that timeline. Because it's not... And it's not just that, oh God, it's not just that there's, that he's from this family where everyone is really successful. They're successful in like literally the coolest way I've ever heard of. Like his sister, <laughs> his sister, his sister showed up once in Shanghai and she was like, I'm just this girl who's going to make a lot of trouble. That's what she said to me. And she's like, I'm just going to break everyone's hearts. That's like that's literally what she said to me, and then she like made out with me, and she had this a asymmetrical haircut, and she was like a dyke, and I'm like, I'll make out with a dyke, I guess it's all good, and she, 
they were just these like two geniuses from this wealthy family with these impeccable ethical frameworks that were completely ahead of their time. And listen to this. This is what Iris is doing now. His sister. She has started a, I don't even know what you call it. It's a company, it's a business, it's a therapy service, it's a consultancy where she has devoted herself to being a agency. It's an agency that you can contact and if you have a if you've inherited wealth if you're like an american and you're young and you're you've inherited a lot of your parents wealth she will help you to bring that wealth back to the community she will show you how and why you need to not keep that wealth because that wealth is fucking colonialism and it's like bro that's the truth and that's what no one wants to admit. And everyone is a fucking decolonizer until it until it turns until it's their own trust fund, you know? Like no one puts their money where their mouth is. But like here's this lady who is from this wealthy family and puts together her whole life to just support social justice causes with her own money that she's inherited, that she doesn't want to like she doesn't just want to be a rich person who just like buys three nice houses. And instead she's like giving back to the community, giving up all of her own wealth and putting her own wealth towards building this company where she reaches out to other rich young people to, so that they will give the money back. And like, I'm not, I'm obviously not describing it in a good way, but like, do you understand how like, fucking morally bulletproof that is do you understand how morally next level that is because it's not just it's one thing it's first here's level zero level zero is you end up with a bunch of money and you keep it you're not a shit person it's neutral actually it's ethically neutral until you really start to unpack it and it's like everything started with slavery and everything started with fucking the pillaging of Africa and, you know, the hundred years of humiliation of China and, like, every brown person in the world has a history of being fucking, had their shit stolen from, by white people. So it's like, it's morally neutral until you really look at it. So then that level one, beyond level uh, zero, is realizing that you kind of have to be super charitable with the money that you have because you have it because of a lot of privilege. That's level one. And then level two is making like a high impact <laughs> it's so fucking cool making like a high impact cultural and business phenomena of bringing other people along and trying to convince an advocacy for how we need to decolonize our own money and our parents money and if we have rich parents we need to bring this back to the community it's like reparations bro the reparations makes a whole lot of sense until it's your own money that you have to give back, you know? And being, oh God, like, do you understand how much I would have, oh God. And then there's a timeline where I could have just, like I would have loved to just be a widget on <clears throat> her machinery of being ethically good, you know? I would have loved to just be a, be work the front desk you know, I just, I'll work the front desk. 
I'll just pick up the phone. I'll just handle the fucking back-end spreadsheets or some shit. Pay me minimum wage. I'll handle the spreadsheets in your consultancy where we make the world a better place. I would have loved that. You know? I'm just a stupid Swede. Like, I get it. I don't, I don't need to be part of the brain part of it. Like, I don't need to be part of, like, any interesting part of it. I'll be part of the boring part. I'll fucking lick stamps and put them on envelopes and do the mailers, you know? Make the pamphlets and I'll hand them out. And it's like, there's a timeline, there's an alternate reality where John didn't die and I just got to be part of something and I... Something where we could have been good people, you know? And the world could have been a better place and, and there's all this stuff and... I mean, I'm grateful that she's out there and she's doing this like such just out of everything I've heard of in my entire life. I think I respect her life's work more than anything, you know, more than anything else. I think that is the most evolved form of moral perfection that I have heard of. And yeah, I don't know. And there's FOMO. There's FOMO in my heart of like, wow, I just thought she was so cool. And I would have loved to spend time with her too, you know? But it's like, <clears throat> I'm just some guy who like wasn't there for her brother when he was dying. And, you know, I, I, every three years I think about reaching out to her and being like, I just, you know, I just hope you're good. And I just want you to know that I really loved John. And I'm sorry I wasn't there for that. But then AA teaches us that apology, when you're going to do an apology, before you reach out to a person like that, where there was pain and you failed them and you did something wrong, before you reach out to do your big apology, you have to you have to really interrogate what who is this apology for because if it is for yourself more than anything if it is probably quite painful for them to hear the apology because you're asking them to re revisit a part of their life that they are not happy about and you have pain in your heart that you're trying to get rid of by apologizing then um then that's not it daddy you know that's not him that's not what we should be doing. <clears throat> That's not what we should be doing. Oh, God. Anyway. I sound unhappy. I sound unhappy, so it's a good episode, but secretly, I'm happy. So, therefore, I'm going to take a hiatus, and I'll be back in a month. Okay? I love you guys. Keep it crispy. You know, strictly for my dolphins, you know, sparkle horses, sparkling community, you know, bubble boys, all my bubble boys stay bubbly, you know what I'm saying? Soda stream that chocolate milk, you know what I'm saying? Wood blocks, making monkey noises with your mouth, you know what I'm saying? Keep it tribal, we're a community, we love each other. And if if you listen to the podcast and, and you, you're going to miss the podcast, <clears throat> if you exist, you know? Send me an email. I would love to hear from you. I love you, you know? My email is joakim.erickson at gmail.com. J-O-A-K-I-M dot A-E-R-I-K-S-S-O-N. That's my email. Shoot me an email. I would love to hear from you. I love all of you guys. <laughs>
we keep going, you know. It's pain and everything sucks, but we're happy. At least for a little bit. I'm going to go be happy at least for a little bit. Thank you.